right, good morning, beloved. Great to see everyone this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are finishing up 1 Peter chapter 3. And um, as I said at the opening, we'll be returning to our verses we were in last week, verses 18 to 22. with us last week, or if you're familiar um, with this passage, you know these are truly some of the most uh, challenging verses in all of Scripture. I mean, it starts out pretty straightforward. We have Jesus on the cross dying for our sins, which, amen, we preach Christ and Christ crucified every day. But then Peter says, Christ, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Did you know that while Jesus' body was in the tomb that that he was made alive in spirit and he went and made proclamation to disobedient spirits in the time of Noah? Well, that's not all. Then Peter mentions the construction of Noah's Ark where eight people were brought through water to safety. And then he says, and corresponding to that, if that wasn't enough for you, baptism now saves you. And then he adds, but not the way that you think. (laughs) And then there's a reference to a good conscience, the resurrection, and all powers and authorities being subjected to Christ. Peter puts all that in just five verses. That's why even the great reformer Martin Luther once said of this passage, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. (laughs) I appreciate Luther's honesty and recognize how easy it is for us to get sidetracked and lost in some of these uh, details, and there are certain uh, passages that, that can do that to us, but I don't want us to miss, there's a treasure here. There's a, there's a rich, rich treasure here to be had that's before us, And why Peter's bringing all of this into the argument, you ask? Well, so in order for us to um, rightly divide the scripture, we can't forget context. Before we start jumping into text, and that's part of the great thing about expositional, expository preaching, is that if you come every week, we're going verse by verse through each chapter and book in the Bible, and so... We're constantly in the context of the passage. Um, And what has been Peter's context throughout these at least last couple chapters? You ask, well, he's he's been instructing his readers of the time on how to live godly lives in the midst of an ungodly culture. And while doing that, while experiencing unjust suffering on top of it, And so to do that, Peter keeps just bringing us back to the cross, bringing us back to the cross. He's showing us Christ's perfect example of unjust suffering and that through that suffering, and this is important, that through the suffering, the unjust suffering that Christ experienced on the cross, that he accomplished the glorious saving purpose of God, which should then, then for us good believers, hope and confidence and security for the triumph of God's purpose in the midst of our own sufferings. So in other words, not only does Peter want us to respond to trials the way that Christ did, but he also wants to be encouraged by the victory that was accomplished in Christ's suffering. And if God can do that through the cross of Calvary, what might he be doing even now in your trial. And so, as we get into the uh, text today, I just want to remind you once again who Peter is writing to. He tells us he's writing to persecuted believers who are suffering greatly for the name of Christ. They have been dispersed throughout Asia Minor. Many have probably had to flee their own homes and they've been experiencing excruciating torment at the hands of a pagan Caesar Nero and his evil rule. And so what is our context? Peter wants 
to once again encourage these people by reminding them that they share in the sufferings of Christ. They share in the sufferings of Christ that Christ also suffered unjustly. And when he was crucified, it was also the time of his greatest triumph. His greatest triumph. For when all looked hopeless and dark, it was at that very moment that Christ went to heaven and has been seated at the right hand of God the Father and is being crowned as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So when you, child of God, are facing unjust suffering or maybe you're going through a testing, this is a reminder for you to lift your eyes and to look at Christ and know that your God is ruling and reigning right now and is working everything out perfectly for his glory. All right, so let's uh, read our verses once through together, and, and then after we can work our, our way through this uh, wonderful text, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. This is the reading of God's living and infallible word. Peter writes, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now last week we got through our first two points in examining the triumph of Christ in his suffering. Um, if you see on the back of your bulletin, first we covered his triumphant sin-bearing. His triumph and sin bearing. We look at five different features of that. I'll um, look at quickly just some of what we talked about. Notice what it says in the first part of verse 18. It says, For Christ also died. So, our first feature of his sin bearing was the suffering of Christ was ultimate. It was the ultimate suffering. In fact, his suffering went far beyond any suffering you or I could ever imagine. How do you ask? Well, for starters, he was perfectly just. He was perfectly just. He was perfectly righteous when he suffered unjustly. So when we say his suffering was the ultimate suffering, what we mean is, is he unjustly suffered perfectly until death. Christ was without sin. You can't suffer any more than that, and he did so righteously. So his suffering then was the ultimate, as he is the only one who was perfectly just and was murdered for righteousness' sake. Christ alone has done that for us. Secondly, he suffered for sins, not his own. Verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins. Back in chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And yet, chapter 2, verse 22 says, He committed no sin. No sin. And yet, he died for our sins. His death paid the penalty for our sins. It was our sin that put him there. In fact, last week we looked at that phrase, died for sins, and saw how it's used in Scripture to speak of a sin offering. Exodus 29, 36, God had said to the priest, each day offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Sin offering at the cross, Jesus also died for sins, for sins. There's a third thing about his triumphant sin bearing, for not only was his death the ultimate suffering, not only did he die for sins, but thirdly, he died in a unique way which sets him apart from everybody else. 
how you ask. Notice again the text. For Christ also died for sins. And then what's that next word? Once. Once. There we go. We got participation. <laughs> got to understand for the Jewish people, for the Jewish people who were very familiar with their sacrificial system, this was totally a new concept. Okay? All throughout their history to atone for sins, they had slaughtered millions upon millions of animals. During just one of their annual Passover celebrations, as many as a quarter million lambs were sacrificed. It was a bloodbath. And they repeated this year after year, day after day, sacrifice after sacrifice. And now, all of a sudden, Christ dies for sins once, and it was sufficient for all. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was fitting for us to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, listen to this, who, unlike the other high priest, he does not need daily to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once, for all when he offered up himself. And that's why Christ's sacrifice is better than any other sacrifice. It was once for all and never needing to be repeated again. The work on the cross, Jesus said, is finished. Is finished. Christ died for sins once for all, both fully and finally. Point number four is triumphant sin-bearing was also substitutional. It was substitutional, and this wonderful phrase really sums it up for us, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was without sin, took our place on Calvary's cross. Wages of sin is death. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. That's the substitutionary atonement. He took the judgment that belonged to us, and he was the perfect, complete, final sacrifice for our sins. And then point number five the suffering of Christ was also purposeful. It was purposeful. Now, in what sense do you ask? For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. That was his purpose. That was, he bore our sins in his body on that cross so that he might bring us to God. He made the way. And we see that symbolically as God demonstrated that when he tore open the, the veil at the, the temple from, from top to bottom and threw open access to the holies of holies and immediate access for everyone. No more separation. No more priesthood. We're all now priests and kings in the sight of God and all have immediate access for him. That is the beautiful work of reconciliation. The just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. That was point number one, his triumphant sin-bearing. Point number two was his triumphant sermon. His triumphant sermon. Now this is where it got real interesting, and praise God for all of you hanging in with me last week. Let's pick this whole thing up back in verse 18. We'll call it 18b. Notice, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient. This was a pretty large section of our sermon um, last week. We went through a lot of scripture, so if you missed it and you want a complete summary, you can go to our website or I think um, the, the YouTube page certainly has it. But I'll try to do a kind of a quick version of this. You, you can't skip too many details. Um, but Christ, let's start with this, Christ really died on the cross. All right, that's, that's why here and elsewhere it says he was put to death in the flesh. 
All right. Yet at some point, uh, possibly in the tomb, he was made alive in spirit. He was made alive in spirit. And while alive in spirit, it says he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. <laughs> so uh, we discovered that these are, in fact, evil spirits. They are fallen angels who God put into prison. We would call them today demons. And these fallen angels who had left their abode in heaven during the time of Noah. In fact, they were so evil that 2 Peter chapter 4, verse 4 says, when they sin, God casts them into hell, and, and that could be the abyss or, or the realm of the dead, not necessarily hell, hell. But God cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, so they're in prison, to be kept until the judgment. And again, he says, it was at the time of Noah. <clears throat> now, if you uh, go into the little book of Jude, Jude tells us which angels that he put into prison. And uh, what was this sin that was going on in the time of Noah that God had to flood the entire world? Notice what Jude says in verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode. God has kept in eternal bonds, same thing, under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So what was their specific sin? They did not keep their own domain. They abandoned their proper abode. These fallen angels, these demons, have left their proper abode. And Jude 7 explains whatever they did, it happened also in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we went and looked at what happened in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, that is in the same way as these demons, indulged in what? Gross immorality. What kind do you ask? They went after strange flesh. And do you remember what kind of sin was so rampant in Sodom and Gomorrah that God had to destroy it? Sodomy, homosexuality. And you remember the story, there were those two magnificent holy angels that had taken on a human form that came and um, went to go warn Lot and his family. And when they come into uh, Lot's house, these homosexual men see these handsome men and start going crazy, banging on the door. They wanted those men. And so Jude says, these fallen angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode and are now kept in eternal bonds under darkness, since they in the same way indulged in immorality and went after strange flesh. And, and when you go to Genesis 6 in the time of Noah, what do you see? That the sons of God, those are the fallen angels, those are the demons, saw daughters of men. And we went through all this last week, but were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. So what do we see from all these verses? Essentially, you have these fallen angels who did not keep their own domain. They've come down to earth, the, the literal realm, not the, the spiritual realm. They've probably taken on human bodies of some form, just as in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they take wives for themselves, indulge in gross immorality, Jude says. They go up to strange press, flesh in order to produce a, a unredeemable race is going to be my guess. Some kind of a demon-possessed offspring. They wanted to create a situation where the Messiah himself could not be born. Destroy the promise, the seed of the promise. And this was Satan's great efforts to corrupt the human line with some kind of demonic human monstrosity. And because of that, we read in Peter's epistle and also in Jude that these demons who did that were put in these everlasting chains and bound in a prison house and where they will be kept forever until the day of judgment. So, but why, we ask, does Peter bring this story into the, the cross and, and everything that's going on? Such a strange story for it just to be dropped in here. Well, 
When Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, surely all the demons and Satan and the powers of hell thought, ha ha, we've won. We've killed the Son of God. And all of those demons in that pit surely thought Satan would get those keys and let them out of there and would release them. So while they're down there hoping for their moment of release, you see, suddenly they hear a sound and, and they're so surprised. The door opens up and it's not Satan. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus shows up. And so what Peter says in verse 18 is Christ having been put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit. And what did he do, you ask? He went and made proclamation to the spirits still in prison. The verb rendered here, made proclamation, caruso uh, in the Greek means to, to make a proclamation, to announce a triumph. In the ancient world, military generals and kings would have their herald announce their victories. And that's what's happening here. Christ was announcing, he was proclaiming, he was heralding his triumph. And what was he proclaiming? His triumph over sin, his triumph over death, his triumph over Satan, the demons, and this pit. And he went and made proclamation of his triumph. That's what this passage is all about. It's all about Christ triumphing, victorious, in the midst of unjust suffering so that was point number two christ went and preached a triumphant sermon and so this morning we come to point number three the third area in which the lord triumphed and we'll call this his triumphant salvation his triumphant salvation notice the rest of verse 20 it says when the patience of god kept waiting in the days of noah during the construction of the ark in which few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. So in the days of Noah, you have these demons running around. They've, they've overstepped even the, the bounds that God had established on their own wickedness. The Bible says the earth in that time had become so evil that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continuously. Demons had left their abode. They, they've left the spiritual realm. They're going after strange flesh. They're cohabiting with the daughters of men, doing their own evil pleasures. They're filling up the world with all their wicked, vile, anti-God activity. And so God's patience is about to run out. He's going to drown the whole earth. And he's going to start over with just eight people who will be brought through the water safely. And Peter is going to use this great story as an analogy. So, who were the eight people, you ask? Well... There was no and his wife, and you've got the three sons also had their wives. All were spared in the flood. The flood came and drowned the entire world except eight people. Why were there only eight people spared? Because only eight people believed. Eight people believed on the face of the earth. And what makes this so remarkable is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, Noah was a preacher. He was a preacher. He was a preacher of righteousness, it says. And was warning of God's impending judgment. And he preached this message, I'm assuming, the entire time that he was building the ark. So think about it. For 120 years, <laughs> Noah's ark was an object lesson. Pretty big one at that. It, it was a boat for, for about one year. It was an object lesson for 120 years. A lot better than the little felt stick-on things we had when we were kids in Sunday school. No, there's the ark. There's the ark. And, uh, and that's what it means there in verse 20 when it says, when the patience of God kept waiting. That was the period of God's grace, 120 years. Unfortunately, nobody listened. They all drowned except for Noah's family. And can you imagine that, preaching for 120 years? About the coming judgment of God, having this massive object lesson sitting behind you as the ark is being built, and at the end of those 120 years, having no converts outside your own family? 
It's like Jeremiah. Preached for 40-something years, imprisoned, everything else. Not a single one. But for those eight who believed, the ark was the means of their deliverance from the judgment. As long as they were in the ark, they were safe. And when the flood waters came, the ark floated. And those eight souls among all the human beings on the face of the earth were alone saved. Eight. We might say that the ark carried them from a world of wickedness and iniquity into a brand new life. In fact, they passed through the judgment by being in that ark. They were not touched. They were immersed into an ark. And they went through the judgment. The rain was above them. The waters burst forth below them. They were in the middle of the judgment, but they were untouched in the safety of that ark. For Peter, this is a picture of salvation. So with that as our foundation, let's now go interpret verse 21 now. Peter starts by saying, and corresponding to that, Stop right there for a moment. Your translation should have the word corresponding or symbolizes very close to the start of the sentence. Because Peter is seeing an analogy here. It's the word antitupon in the Greek. It means corresponding to or, or typical of. It means it's, it's some kind of a type, a picture, a, a, a pattern. It has the idea of an earthly expression of a heavenly reality. It's a symbol or a reality of a spiritual truth. Now, scholars ask the question, what is the anti-tupon then? Is it the ark or is it the water? And I think the answer is both. It's the whole thing. <laughs> um. That just as these eight people in the ark went through the waters of judgment, so the believer is carried safely through the judgment, baptized into Christ. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And I think what will help us even better understand this is if we view that word baptism as meaning immersion. Immersion. I think then we, we begin to move toward the real meaning of the text here. Let me just say this at the outset. I don't think he's talking about water baptism here because water baptism doesn't save you. I think what he's talking about is the immersion into an ark of safety that went through a judgment. Follow the context. Peter's saying, just like Noah was placed with his sons and his wives into the ark of safety, and they went through the judgment. So you have been immersed in some kind of a protective ark that has taken you through the judgment. Now, what baptism is he talking about here? Well, you'll notice in verse 21, you probably have some dashes in that sentence. The translators in the New American Standard understand that they were needed to mark out these qualifying statements. And so the first one, he says negatively. He says, I'm not talking about this. And then he says, this is what I mean. <laughs> he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He says, I'm not talking about water baptism. I'm talking about appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The baptism Peter's talking about here is the baptism into the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. That's the issue here. You aren't saved by water baptism. You are saved by Christ. And as the flood was this furious judgment that God used and it killed everybody on the face of the earth, yet there were eight 
who lived through it by faith as they were immersed in an ark of safety. So also the judgment of God rained down upon Christ for our sins, the just for the unjust. But you who were baptized into his death and resurrection are also immersed in him, pictured here as an ark of safety. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, I'm not talking about water baptism. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh that saves you. That's, that's external. I'm talking to you about grace through faith coming into union with Christ, undergoing the judgment of God that fell upon him in his death and burial and resurrection and coming out the other side in the glory of his resurrection. Thus you too have been carried through the judgment of God out the other side, being immersed, as it were, in Christ, the ark of safety. And just like Noah's family who left the world of sin behind and they came through the, jud the judgment of the flood, you also have left the world of sin and you've come through the flood of judgment as the ark, in a sense, was a tomb and there was a certain kind of dying to the world as they entered in it and it was sealed shut. And there was a certain kind of resurrection that day as it, it stopped on Mount Ararat and they opened up the door and walked out into a newness of life in a new world. So also, Peter says, as you by faith entered into the ark of safety in Christ, being baptized into his death, and on that day, suddenly you had eyes to see and ears to hear, and he opened that door for you, and you came bursting forth, raised in newness of life. That's the kind of baptism he's talking about. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's no surprise that Peter is in perfect harmony with Paul on this, isn't he? If you read Romans 6, it sounds like an exposition of what Peter is saying. It says in Romans 6, verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Same idea. Same thing. Same thing. So, Peter makes it clear in that qualifying statement when he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. We're not talking about some external uh, right, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, what does that mean? An appeal to God for a good conscience. Well, that word appeal is a technical term, and it means um, agreeing to a certain set of conditions or to make a pledge to someone. All right, this is an appeal to God for, for like a, a clear conscience. Sinful men have only an evil conscience. The point here is that the sinner is sick of his evil. He's sick of his sin. And, and he is at the end of his self. All of his good deeds, all of his works haven't delivered him a, a, a clear conscience. And, and he, his conscience keeps accusing him of sin. And he wants to be delivered from this burden of sin. He wants to be delivered from the guilt that it brings in his life and the fearful anticipation of the coming judgment. He needs to be cleansed. And so he appeals to God. He wants to experience what Hebrews 9 verse 14 says. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The blood of Christ, beloved. Hebrews Chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from our evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what's he saying there in verse 21? There's an immersion into Christ that saves you. It isn't a, an external ritual of washing what puts you into Christ is not 
water baptism, what puts you into Christ, is Christ. It's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The Father draws you. The Son keeps you. The Spirit convicts you concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's why you appeal to God for a, a clean conscience. You recognize, I'm not a good person. I need forgiveness. And we see this on the day of Pentecost at the birth of the church. Peter preaches an incredible sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he says to this massive crowd in verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 36, he's still continuing. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, notice what happens. Now when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said, Peter, and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They're confronted with their sin. The blood of Christ through the eternal spirit in the cleansing of their conscience. Peter then said to them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What saved them? Moments before this, they were mocking the disciples, thinking they had drank too much wine. But now you see, through the proclamation of the gospel, confronted with their sin, God draws man to himself. And those who received the word believed and were baptized, it said, and there were added to that day, Brother Don, about 3,000 souls. That was the number. 3,000. What saves you? Not water. Baptism, but immersion into the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a heart longing from, to be delivered from the crushing burden of sin that plagues your evil conscience and wants to now covenant with God and to live an obedient life that pleases him. There was a great story. We don't have time. I'll have to read it to you sometime. About a five or maybe even a ten minute story. But it's a, uh, a, a, a disciple of um, Jesus Christ who goes and he meets with a Mormon. And the long and short of it, essentially, um, the Mormon says, well, what does it mean then that, that you were saved by getting baptized? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. Who got baptized in the time of Noah? The eight in the ark didn't get wet. They were saved. The ones who got wet died well that brings us to our final point point number four peter also sees christ's triumphant supremacy his triumphant supremacy in verse 22 peter sees this triumphant resurrected christ and he says who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. What a final note concerning the Lord's triumphant suffering. Throughout both the Old and New Testaments, and for all eternity, might I add, the right hand of God has always been seen as the seat of the highest preeminence. And what Peter is affirming is that when Jesus had accomplished his work on the cross, he was exalted to the right hand of God, and he sat down, a place of prominence and honor and majesty and authority and strength and power. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 for a moment. I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 1, one of the um, great chapters concerning the triumph of Christ. Chapter 1 more or less focuses on how Christ is far better. I mean, Hebrews essentially does that, how Christ is far better than everything. Chapter 1 is more or less that, that Christ is far better than the, than the angels in, in the spiritual realm. But in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he, meaning Christ, and, and listen to this, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact 
imprint of his nature. And, I love this, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The same thoughts as Peter. Verse 4, he had become much better than the angels. Verse 6, let all the angels of God worship Christ. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of the uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, yes, when the work of the cross was finished, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, ascended from heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and he did so as the supreme one. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, familiar verse, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the right hand of God is the seat of all honor and authority and power and is where our Lord sits as he rules and reigns all nations, making all his enemies a footstool under his feet. We see this uh, throughout all of scripture. Um, Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And we see this over and over again. It says that he died, he rose, he went to the right hand of God. And um, of course, I would be amiss if we didn't include the great chapter of Philippians 2. It tells us how exalted his position is. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 7, he talks about Christ's humiliation as he emptied himself, taking the form of a don, uh, as Don said, as a bond servant. Verse 8, he, he made himself found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, it says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, from the cross to the grave, out of the grave, ascension, right hand of God, the Father then bestowed on him the name above every name that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Peter says that this one, Jesus Christ, marvelously triumphs even in the midst of his dying on the cross and is now seated at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. I think uh, this verse looks back not only at the moment that Christ descended as he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, the abysso, 
probably what that angel that Jesus freed legion from. It, 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 what do you hear? It's before the time. Don't send me to the abyss. But I, I think it, this, this not only looks back to the moment that Christ descended, he went, made proclamation to the spirits in prison of his triumphant victory, but also to the fact that it was through the cross and through the resurrection that all angels and all authorities and all powers, not only to those in prison, but Paul just said in Philippians 2, to those in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. That could be the spirits or the realm of the dead had been subjected to Christ. Every, every, every rank of all spiritual beings must be submitted to Christ. He is preeminent. He is preeminent. Remember the words of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, it says that Christ was raised from the dead and God seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So that covers everything. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Every created being is subjected to Christ. He is the sovereign one. That word subjection is hupatasso in the Greek. It's a military term. It means to rank under, to be in subjection to. And so we see Jesus even now on his throne ruling and reigning as he's put all things in subjection under his feet. And it was through unjust suffering that Christ gained his greatest victory and his triumph as he triumphed over sin-bearing, and he triumphed over the spirits, and he triumphed providing salvation, and he triumphed in supremacy as he sits at the right hand of God. But why write this to these heavily persecuted Christians 2,000 years ago? Because Peter's saying is, look at your unjust suffering as a path to, to triumph and victory. Don't be defeated, Christian. You're not defeated. You're not. If you are in Christ, you have not been defeated. It, it, it was for Christ that he went through that. It may be for you to go through it as well. Listen to these last couple of verses. Romans 8, verse 17. It says, and if children, we are heirs. If we are children of God, we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Notice. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. It was through Christ's greatest suffering that God exalted him to glory, and now we rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's suffering, 1 Peter 4 says. Remember the words of Paul. This, this is right before his unjust execution. And, and he writes Timothy one final letter, 2 Timothy. And he states uh, later in this letter, he's already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. He's fought the good fight. He's run the good race. And he's kept the faith. At his trial, he says, no one came by my side. All my brothers um, left me. They deserted me. Yet he quickly adds, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He writes, He's suffering bound in chains, chapter 2, as a criminal. Yet the word of God is not bound, he says. Verse 10, for this reason, I endure everything. For the sake of those who are chosen. So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. What a witness for Christ. I, I do it for the ones God's chosen. I don't know who they are, but I keep preaching Christ. And with it, eternal and glory, he said. Verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Amen. Paul followed Christ's example and walked in Jesus' steps. Remember that from chapter 2? 
Philippians 1, verse 29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake only, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Beloved Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. You see, beloved, Christ will always lead us to triumph, even as Christ triumphed in the midst of unjust suffering. He triumphed over sin to bring us to God. He triumphed over all the spirits that would stand against God and his people, and he put them in their place, as it were. He triumphed as an ark of safety in order to bring us through the waters of judgment to our salvation. And he triumphed in supremacy as he is seated at the right hand of God, and all things are now subjected to him. Don't underestimate the potential triumph in unjust suffering. It may be that when you suffer unjustly, you too might have the opportunity because of how well you suffered in trusting it to God to lead someone to Christ. It may be that when you suffer unjustly, the Lord will give you great and glorious triumph over the demons that you've so wrestled with. It may be that when you suffer unjustly, you might become a source of safety for someone else who sees how well you've weathered the storm. So look not away from the suffering, but look through it to the triumph and victory that's assured to you in Christ Jesus. If you're suffering this morning or if you need prayers for uh, any other reason, we'd be happy to pray with you this morning. At this time, I want to invite you to please stand as we sing the song of invitation. Glorious day, living you love me, dying you save me. God bless. <laughs>